Welcome to the October 2022 instalment of our podcast series, Bridging the Gaps, co-produced by FASTA, the Foundation for the Economics of Sustainability, and the European Health Futures Forum, or the EHFF. I'm Caroline White. In this month's podcast, David Somek of the EHFF and I spoke with Lars Munter. Lars works on international relations for the Danish Committee for Health Education, and he also manages the communication for Nordic Health 2030, and is a member of the EHFF's advisory group and of the Wellbeing Economy Alliance's Danish hub. So Lars, you're going to talk with us particularly about the implications of the pandemic for communities. Indeed, and thank you for inviting me, David and Caroline, and uh, to all our, our listeners out there. Thank you, I guess, for uh, spending time listening to us, me, on this topic. I guess there's been a, a lot of implications and a lot of impact for communities across the world and, and in Europe too. And I would point to two of them, the immediate impact, of course, of suddenly finding themselves in a world where uh, a lot of health services disappeared overnight. They were told to go home, stay home and not to bother the system unless they really had a problem, meaning, uh, of course, if they had COVID, other problems were not important per se. That was a profound impact. And it's what it did show also was that we had an enormous capacity in in most of these communities for doing a lot of health and social initiatives. You saw people organising food drives, organising exercise, organizing cultural events of some kind. And I'm not talking about banging pots in this case, but a lot of other stuff that was really quite advanced and and very, very, very helpful. In many ways, of course, people suffered from loneliness. They suffered from the impact of a completely different way of living. But they also found out that there was a lot of qualities uh, to it too. Uh, It was a slower pace. And we've learned that a slower pace might be good. It was a, perhaps a slightly more connected, uh, more um, local experience. Uh, and that was also quite good. Uh, and the other implication, I guess, is that those experiences that people have had, that's experiences that the system has also had. They saw that communities, <laughs> to their surprise, had a lot of capacity, had a lot of potential. And... Since they found, they've found them suddenly in a situation where they're in so much need of of, uh, more healthcare professionals, it's really, really tricky for most of the health system across Europe to be able to uh, find the staff needed to provide the services that they would like to provide. So they're, of course, they're thinking of how can we do this in a different way and seeing the enormous potential and capacity in communities is one of those pathways. It would have been nice if they had realized that before the pandemic. That's not the point, but uh, better late than never, I suppose. And uh, I can see that the other implication then would be that we will finally, and that's a very Nordic Health 2030 movement kind of hope and aspiration, is that we move into a new type of paradigm when it comes to health systems, where we think not of, of the health system as the the institutions, but we see it as a kind of instead of uh, an organism, where, of course, some of the institutions are there, but there's also a, a lot of, what's the phrase, when you have mushrooms, there's a lot of other 
parts of the organism that might be very fine and minute, but they're also part of the overall system. In this case, the communities and the individuals that are supporting each other. We see health being built and created or destroyed in communities. And in this current climate, well, we we have those hospitals to try to fix what's been destroyed. Instead, in the future, we might be able to have a a system or a mindset regarding the organism that nurtures those communities so that we build more and more health, so we build more and more well-being, um, instead of fixing what's been destroyed. That's really interesting, Lars. I guess when you talk about fungi, so I think about mycelia, you know, networks, networks and nets. And I suppose that's the problem for the change of mindset that the authorities, if you like, uh, have to grapple with. I was very struck by the comments you made about possible change because I was in a meeting earlier today talking about a review of the whole notion of patient and community empowerment. And I'm lucky to be working with a group of uh, European experts in this field. And we were reviewing what's changed in the last seven or eight years. And one of the things I think is this realization uh, that just almost as you put it, this is not about people in high places deciding how can we better provide services. It's about them saying, how can something completely new, I think, for many, which is how can we help people in the community develop their services rather than us doing it for them? It's, I remember there was, a, sorry to go on about this, but uh, I re- recall a, a, a cartoon about the Tony Blair government where it was very much about involving the citizen and joined up thinking. But in fact, the joke was uh, the way they dealt with it is to give the citizens a huge manual that they've created to tell them how to do it, which, of course, is utter nonsense. But it is about because of their inability to change their mindset. Well, UK government has always been a rich source of comedy, um, obviously. But but yeah, that is traditionally what the system might might do often. I mean, it's it's very important for them to realize that even though you do not, if you don't re- recognize the existence of, of mycelia, it's still there. And of course, you can do a lot of damage to uh, prevent it from growing, but it, it is definitely still there. So there's uh, there's still an awful lot of power in communities, whether we support it or not. It is the recognition of that power that's the huge difference, so that it might be in, enable us to do something differently. It, what it also does is, well, there's two different impacts. One is that it actually requires our healthcare professionals to uh, probably be trained in a different way. Uh, to work in a different way. If they cease being fixers, they have to be coaches. Uh, and uh, uh, given your background, David, I'm not trying to offend anyone, but it, it, on an overall scale, it, it, even though they're working with humans all the time, it, some doctors seem to tend to forget that uh, that what they're working with are human beings and that they have more than simply some vital signs to check, but they also have motivation. They have 
desires. Uh, they have uh, all kinds of competencies too. So motivating people towards doing stuff uh, can be a much more effective way of providing health. You know, uh, I suppose you've met as, as well, and maybe our listeners have too, the Swedish patient advocate, Sara Rigard. She has this wonderful graphic where she shows the amount of hours in a year um, versus the uh, amount of time where she has the consultancy a session with her specialist. And uh, we have, uh, I think, as far as I remember, 8,765 blue dots and then one red dot. So for 8,765 hours a year, she's left on her own. And so the most important part of that one hour during the year is for the health uh, the specialist is to motivate her maybe, to guide her to use those remaining hours in a good way. And that's, of course, on an individual scale. But the same thing applies for communities too. If you spend your one-hour session wisely, you can do a lot of, of good in motivating them uh, along the right path, but you can, of course, also be destructive. The other impact, you mentioned uh, the difference between seven or eight years ago. I think maybe that we're, um, we're slowly going towards a very positive trend uh, in terms of using digitalization to our advantage. And we've been through a, a journey where the social media and um, different ways that digital platforms were provided us with anything is that initially they provided us with individualism or the, the ability to connect with people on the other side of the planet, but forgetting the people right next door. And I think we're slowly getting to a point where we're using those digital platforms and tools to get better connected to people that are quite close, that have uh, interests and, and passions, if we can use that word as well, that are closer to us and to use that to our benefit. There's still people, of course, that are eager to connect with people uh, across time zones and across uh, continents. But but a lot of us are also more conscious about how to connect with people close to us and using those digital tools to to boost our community uh, in various ways. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I'd comment a couple of things. First of all, absolutely, that your story about the Swedish expert patient we have in our team, Jim Phillip, who is both a user of service, but he actually was behind the NHS. Well, he was one of the people behind the NHS expectation program. And Jim makes exactly the same point, although he makes it slightly differently. He basically says, because people spend all those hours living with their own condition, of course, actually, they know a lot more about it than the professional and the professional because of their time constraints only looks at the medical aspects whereas what the patient says is they i'm going out of this consulting room i'm going back to a life you know and it's the impact on my life that i'm interested in which you don't seem to understand anything about and that yeah, is yeah. about mindset and i think that the symbolic notion of that one hour or three hours uh, a year follow-up is, again, uh, it's also about the top-down notion, isn't it? Because if you think about it, if we want more health coaching, it doesn't have to be from the consultant. It could be from other staff in the team, and there could be much more interaction. And the digital mechanisms make that equally positive, because 
for me, again, it came out in the discussion we had earlier. One of the things is the so what problem, you know, which is we do know that we want to change things and even people are acknowledging it, but what are they doing about it? <laughs> you know, and that's the real issue is how yeah. do we bring about this change? What needs to, what do we push to make happen? Obviously, and this is a huge bugbear, is education of professionals to start thinking in a different way about their relationship with communities. Mm -hmm. But the other is, how do we support communities to be more proactive? This comes back to, it's like when we used to talk about the active patient in the relationship, in the healthcare relationship, it, of course, the illness care relationship. How do we work with communities to help them be active in looking after their health. I mean, this is your area of expertise, after all, and it's a real tough one, isn't it? It is. I think one of the one of the things, and often when we've talked about how to empower patients, it, the, the the conversation goes into that element about power that has sort of a, a built-in notion that it's a zero-sum game. Either I have power or you have power. And if I empower you, I will have less power. And I think it's really helpful for um, that conversation to stop thinking of it as a zero-sum game and to think that if uh, the healthcare professional, and, and it might not be a healthcare professional, true, but let's, let's keep that conversation for later. Mm -hmm. If you empower others, uh, the amount of power grows. The capacity for change Grows. So when you empower your patient or when you empower uh, communities, suddenly a lot more can happen than that was previously impossible. Um, so if you want, of course, to think of how can we, I don't know, build the pyramids, you have to think about in, in a modern sense and how to empower others, but because it will be impossible if you do not use uh, all the capacity and all the competencies out there. It's about, I suppose, in a certain way of, of crowdsourcing uh, the problems or the challenges. If you think that you only have, I don't know, four doctors and 20 nurses, of course, you're stuck. You should think about the fact that right outside the door, there's a, a hell of a lot of citizens that are eager to also contribute. If only they are motivated in the right way, then your problem does not necessarily disappear, but it becomes a completely different one. Yes, that's our good friend Cormac Russell uh, is the expert talking about social capital, which I think is what you're referring to. In part. Caroline, in, in, I'm in, conscious in, that you're you're listening in. <laughs> Would you like to join the conversation? Sure, yeah, listening with interest. Um, I find uh, it very interesting just to notice the synergies and the obvious mapping that can happen between the things that FAST is interested in to do with the economy and community, resilience, community, empowerment, and then health and resilience and empowerment in the area of health. And I mean, we would be very interested in helping communities to be empowered in terms of access to energy, for example, and access to, well, just to plain old money as well. And uh, all of those things, it seems to me, they're all interconnected and they're connected, obviously, with health, because if you if you have enough heating to keep warm in winter, you're likely to be healthier, for example. Um, in the most banal sense, there's a clear, a clear link. So, uh, yeah, I find that whole issue very interesting. And I think Lars's point about how it's not a zero-sum game and giving sharing out power 
doesn't mean less power for the person sharing the power. It actually, in the end, in a very important sense, means more power because you can have a multiplier effect, you know, where what the community is able to do, what it's empowered to do, then builds. And then you end up with actually more overall well-being. And, and that comes back to, to everybody. So it's a much more balanced situation than what we have at present. And the other thing is, um, I find fascinating is the links with education, because as you were saying, you know, medical professionals, there's this move now, as you're saying, if I'm understanding right, to move away from the kind of extremely top down, we are imparting fixes for your illness to you attitudes to we are working with you and we are helping you giving you guidance where you need it so helping you to take power over your own health and helping you with the resources and the resilience to do those things and that really for me has a lot in common with the movement in education that you see in some areas where teachers are more like coaches who are helping their students to identify their passions and follow them and figure out how to best develop their competences uh, but not saying right we're going to make you learn x thing at x time and that's how you're going to do it and and this is how that's how people learn because it's not very empowering it's better to to give them more agency in the whole thing so i don't know if you have any comments or reactions to that but that's those are my initial reactions to what you've been saying as a general reaction, I suppose, for if you've ever had uh, teenagers, you'll know that anything is possible if you can motivate them, and nothing is possible if if you don't. And I guess that in a in a wider sense, uh, the same rings true for a lot of other people. There's a limit to how much you can actually do if you're not also working with motivation in in either whether that motivation is to live a healthy life or um, to connect with your community, that's sort of not really the point. It is still about motivation. And that links, of course, to the, to the good old being able to have all kinds of professionals to ask about what matters to either to the individual or what matters to the community. The joke that David shared earlier about the Tony Blair government, I mean, we've we've seen micro cases of those happening. Well, we see micro cases of those happening all the time. Well-meaning professionals that have designed process or um, some kind of initiative in a local community. And then they maybe, I mean, these days, cases and metaphors can be tricky, but in the 1910s, maybe, or the 1890s, you could see European travelers traveling to Africa and revealing their wonderful gift to the world, to the local population. And then they did, then they went home again, and the local population thought something akin to what the fuck. But I mean, the when you come bearing gifts, it's really, really important that that you actually talk to people and, and, and figure out whether it's actually a gift, if they can use it at all. Um, and I think, of course, that is not that there's nothing wrong with the intent of wanting to give something or wanting to help. That's that's really important. It's just about if you haven't listened also, you can do more damage than you're really helping. I think it's it really leads us, I guess we should finish because we could go on for a very long time about this. It's really something profound, isn't it, that we're talking here actually about changing society in that we know, I think, uh, or we're privileged perhaps those talking around the table today, that we're, we have this view, a holistic view, and we want to share it with others. I mean, the Wellbeing Economy Alliance, for example, where 
we all have connections with that. And that's that's a parallel process, really. But it involves values. And at the moment, they're very strong signs that the values that we think are important aren't necessarily given the precedence they need to because of all kinds of things we understand. But to change that is a huge thing, isn't it? Well, it's it's always tricky to uh, speculate about what the present will mean to the future. <laughs> but it is no surprise that the transition that we we all know was needed, the transition towards more sustainable communities, more sustainable institutions, more sustainable energy consumption, married with the, the entire need to transition from a CO2-based energy system to a, a more sustainable one, that would require, um, well, a lot of change, a lot of uh, a lot of pushback, I suppose, from from the traditional system. We we have seen through history uh, cases where evolution has been carried out in a peaceful and nice manner, but we we often see the opposite. And in this case, even though there's a, a huge distance in the continuum from war in Ukraine to strife in across the European countries, I mean, they're part of that same transition, I, I believe. But what we are seeing also, without being too political about it, is that also uh, the strength of a community that's really dedicated to change to the future has a lot of power if we support it right. And I would hold that metaphor or that uh, argument to be true for the Ukrainians as well as people in across the rest of, of Europe that wants to um, fight for what they believe is right. Yes, I mean, the whole uh, recent events and the last few months and the turmoil in, in Eastern Europe is obviously very related to the economies. It's not, it's not only that, but there's a strong connection with the economy's dependence on, on fossil fuel and the need to get away from that. And so, I mean, all of these things are very much inter interconnected, aren't they? And again, yeah, I don't want to go off on a tangent here. I'm just, I'm just thinking about the, the move away from more centralized energy production and towards uh, more community-based energy production. Part of the strength of that idea is the fact that it can help to make us less dependent on particular governments that we don't particularly want to support. And there's not only one of them, there's quite a few of them. So it is really a very important topic. And I suppose just generally, I think a really important point that was made earlier is also the need to listen to communities themselves. I'm, I'm back now to the idea of health resilience as well as um, other kinds of resilience. And we were talking about what sort of things are needed to help bring about change. And that does seem like a really key one. How would communities themselves feel empowered? What sort of things do they feel that they need? To feel empowered that seems like a good question to start with to make it a real dialogue Lars I remember last year we had a talk as well as part of another podcast and you talked about the language of money and I thought that was a very interesting discussion too and it's kind of relevant to this one as well because to me that's another tool in the toolkit for bringing about changes finding ways to communicate where the other people actually are, can get, understand what you're talking about, putting it in a way that they can they can get. So, yeah, I was just reminded of that when you were talking about possible solutions as well. I would add maybe the, the language of money. Yes, indeed. And I guess for a lot of what we're talking about, uh, the language of communities is one where the system needs to learn that. 
uh, I guess it's not the, the, whether they need to learn more about the language of love, of love I don't know, but uh, the language of well-being and the language of, of really, the real language of empowerment is one that we also need to learn. But understanding and communicating by having the same language, that's really a good idea. It's great talking to you, Lars and Caroline. Uh, thank you very much for the opportunity. I'm sure we'll talk again. <laughs> you too. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, thanks so much. That was Lars Munter of the Nordic Health 2030 Coalition, speaking with myself and David Somek of the European Health Futures Forum. If you enjoyed this podcast, please spread the word about it and tune in for our next instalment at the end of November. Many thanks to Lars for his participation and as always to Leisha Kelly for her music on the harp. <laughs>